well, if you happen to bring a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones in the seat rack in front of you. I think it's on page 716. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 today. And uh, we love it when people are able to just put their finger on the text and follow along. So we're going to look at it a little bit later, but in just a moment, John's going to read this passage to us. So if you're turning to it, again, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. If you're using a black Bible, it's page 716. Now what we're going to read about is how the angel came and announced the, the arrival of Jesus just after he had been born here on earth. And we're going to read about what he said, and then we're going to see how all the angels joined him. And uh, so what that means is when he comes to verse 14, John's going to invite us to all read verse 14 off the screen out loud, and uh, so just be ready for that. But let's listen to what the angel sang that first Christmas. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, please join me. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord. I want to talk to you today about glory and peace. If you haven't been with us, we are in a series called the Songs of Advent, and we've been looking at the way that several different people that were part of that first Christmas responded. We looked at Mary and her response of being hungry and humble before God. We looked at Zechariah and how he prepared the way for the Lord with his son. And then we saw last week that Simeon was learning how to wait well because Jesus didn't just come once, he's coming again. This week we want to look at the angels' song and see what they sang about. And you'll notice it's angels, plural, but that's not the way it starts. It starts with just one angel. So I want to talk to you about that today. And if you haven't been with us, here's the sentence we've been looking at. In the series, you can look along in the message notes. It's that Jesus' arrival calls for, I mean, it's so huge that it calls for a response. What will mine be? Jesus' arrival, we've been learning that the word Advent means arrival or coming. So Advent is all about the time that Jesus came to earth. And so we want to talk about, again, what the angels said when Jesus came to earth. And we see what their response is. The question is, this Christmas season, what will yours be? Will it be yon-yon? Will it be apathy? Will it be uh, joy? Will it be sadness? What kind of response will you make? Will you find yourself resisting Christ? Will you find yourself more open to him? What kind of response will be yours? And again, we're just talking about how we can respond, because here's what we know. When you and I give our hearts to the Lord in a fresh way, it just changes everything. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk to you about glory and peace. And what we're going to do is before we get to glory and peace, which is verse 14, I want to talk to you about what the angels said before that. And then 
We're going to talk about how we can respond. So would you pray with me before we look at this passage together? Lord, every week I'm just reminded that if you come to a seat and you speak to us, it's different than when I speak. So I pray that I can be a faithful messenger. I pray that I can be a servant of yours today. I'm so thankful for your word. I thank you that we have guests here today. I know there are some here that are supporting their families, and I thank you that they're here, and I pray that each one of us will know that it's no accident that we're here, that you want to speak to us. I pray you would. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, if you're uh, following along, the very first thing I want you to see is that one angel appears to the shepherds, and the Lord's glory shines, if you're following along. One angel, not angels, but one angel appears to the shepherds that night, and the Lord's glory shines around them. Would you um, mind reading verse 9 with me in the message uh, notes there in that first gray box? Let's read it out loud together. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago when Steve was teaching that when the angel appeared to Zechariah, oh, uh, it was terrifying. In fact, Steve reminded us that every time an angel appeared, the very next thing they usually said was what? Don't be afraid. Why? Because you get afraid when you see an angel. And these angels, uh, again... A lot of things are being said about angels today, and this isn't a message to talk about angels in depth. But what you need to know is that angels are different than human beings. Human beings don't become angels. Jesus says that in some ways we'll share some of the same experiences with the angels in heaven, but a person doesn't become an angel. Angels are a separate created group that he has. In fact, look what Hebrews 1.14 says about angels. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? In other words, God has appointed the angels to serve those of us that believe in him and will receive his salvation. And so the angels are spirit beings that we can't always see. They don't always make themselves manifest, but they're real and they are ministering around. So this particular night, while the the shepherds are just doing shepherding, this angel cracks the sky, and when the angel does, the glory of the Lord also shines around them, and uh, they are absolutely afraid. Now, you need to know, shepherds live 24 hours a day outside, not like in the Midwest, people that had sheep here. They lived with the sheep, so they weren't afraid of the dark. They knew what it was like to have all kinds of predators that they had to protect sheep from. They were brave people, but when the glory of the Lord shows up, oh, even the most brave person, their knees knock. And that's something to notice there. Second thing I hope you'll see is that the angel brings joy-causing good news for all the people. The angel brings joy-causing good news for all the people. If you're following along, you'll see that in verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for how many people, friends? All. One of the things that I want you to see is at Christmas is that this is for everybody. No matter their background, no matter whether they've ever been in church or not, no matter what somebody's gone through, God, God cares about all the people, and this good news is meant to be offered to every person. So again, I don't know what your background is, but I hope that you're 
grateful that God has a heart that big and that wide this Christmas. But again, notice that what happens is, is when he says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, because the good news is about a person like we learned last week. But second, the reason why is because this has been a long time in coming. I don't know if you know, but the very last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and then the first is Matthew, the New Testament, and there's this like white page in our Bibles. Do you realize that that page alone stands for 400 years? And so there have been hundreds of years, ages and generations. Now look at this passage in 1 Peter 1. I love this. This salvation, this good news, was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful, look at this last sentence, that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Can you picture the angels looking over the balcony of heaven, going, look at that, awesome! been coming a long time and coming, and now it's happened. And this good news is so precious. God had promised that he was going to do something to take a sad and sorry world and people whose lives were turned upside down. He was going to do something. And the angel says, I bring you good news because the time is now. If you're following along, look at this. It says a Savior's been born. God's already been working. A Savior's been born, the angel says, which means God's already been working. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we begin to think that we actually control God or how he does things, that he waits for our permission to do things. And sometimes, friends, he does wait for us to want him, to ask him. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that God does without asking us. He's already been working. Do you believe, friends, that there is more to life than your eye can see, than your ear can hear, or that you can observe? I know I've met a lot of people that believe that it's all up to my five senses that determines what's real. And certainly I'm grateful for the five senses God's given us. But do you believe there's more going on right now than you and I are aware of? Do you believe that there is a parallel universe going on that you and I may not know about What's happening? And these angels are saying, you need to know, even though you're busy here watching the sheep, God's doing something over there, and he wants you to know about it. He's already working. Friends, that's so powerful to realize that God may be working around me, and I don't even know it. Some Sundays when I prepare and think about speaking to some of you, I remind myself that God may have been doing something in the last couple weeks or even this week in your heart that may make you go, I am more open to what God is saying to me because of what he's already been doing. And I praise him because he is sovereign and he has already been previous. But notice another thing is that he's the Messiah and the Lord. That's what the angel says. You notice that. And by the way, some of us, even those of us that don't necessarily believe in Jesus, have heard him called Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes even used as a curse word. 
Jesus Christ means Jesus Messiah. The Christ or Messiah are interchangeable words. And so when someone says Jesus Christ, they mean Jesus Messiah. So the Bible here, the angels, they announce, they go, this is the one. This is the Messiah that's been prophesied for all time. And this is going to happen now. The Messiah has been born. But he's not just the Messiah. He's not just a human savior. He's not just the Messiah. He is the Lord God maker of heaven and earth. And he is right now in a feeding trough over in Bethlehem. He's a person. Wow. Now, I don't know if you've seen this before, but when the early Christians began to preach about Jesus, they wanted to make sure that no one mistakenly thought that Jesus was just one of several options, one of any religious leaders that you could choose from. He was it. All of human history revolved around him. And no matter what you do with Jesus now, you and I will stand before Jesus one day and give an account because all of history is revolving around Jesus. And no matter what people say in our country, no matter what you may think in your heart, God says in his word that he is the Messiah and he's the Lord. And what you and I do with him is huge. So look at this, Acts 2.36, one of the very first sermons that was preached after Jesus rose again. Therefore, let all Israel, this was happening in Jerusalem, so all of Israel had kind of gathered for the Passover. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and what, friends? Messiah. So he was the anointed one through which God was going to save the world. Notice another thing is the angel makes it clear how to find Jesus. The angel makes it clear how to find Jesus. You notice what it says there in verse 12? I love this. It says, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. In other words, don't look inside a house necessarily. Or don't look just where people are. Look where animals are. Because a manger, as nice as we make it look on our cards, is where animals ate out of. And he's going to be lying in a manger. So he said, you can find him. That town's not that big over there in Bethlehem. And when you find him, he's going to be wrapped in cloths, not royalty, not royal robes, cloths. He's been born to a poor family, and you'll be able to see him. I love the fact that the angels say, let me get really practical with you, shepherds. Here's how you can find him. And friends, I don't know about you, but it amazes me how God knows how across the ticker of our minds so many times to speak fluently to us where we know exactly what he's saying. Some of us have sat in this room and we know exactly the person he wants us to go and get right with. Sometimes we've sat in this room and we've known that he's saying to us, I want you to open your heart to me. I want you to trust me. I want you to turn from going your own way. We know it. Made it absolutely clear what he wants us to do, and this angel did that. But there's one more thing I want you to see, and that's this, is that a host of heaven joins and sings of glory and peace. A host of heaven joins and sings of glory and peace. The word host here means army. Isn't that ironic, by the way, that an army would sing of peace? But the idea here is it says a great company. What that means is not 50, not 100, not 150, but a, a company of angels that's so big it's beyond number. Some scholars that I read this week said they believe that every angel in heaven got involved. 
Now just imagine this. Imagine what happened to this sleepy sky when all of a sudden the angel went from one to beyond counting. And they began to praise God, saying and singing these incredible words. Would you read them with me? Verse 14 is in the gray box there at the bottom of the notes. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now again, I'm just thinking to myself, they could have praised God, they could have sung about anything. Do you know that in the Bible, there's only once or twice that I know of, maybe there's a few more times, when more than one or two or three angels show up at the same time. So this is a big day. And when the angels show up in this kind of crowd, the shepherds get a front row seat to a light show that must have been incredible and a concert that was amazing. They never forgot what they sang that night. And so why did they pick glory and peace? If you're going to praise God, there's a lot of other things you could have praised God. Why do they say glory and peace? And I want to talk to you about that. Before I do, though, can you imagine the kind of joy that they were praising God with? Have you ever sang with a group of people, maybe just like this morning? Wasn't that a great opportunity to sing with other people and just hear other people praising God around you? When I was younger, I went out to a Promise Keepers event in Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado. 50,000 men singing the praises of God in that stadium. We learned that a year later, one of the people in uh, Boulder, Colorado, had been in the hospital a mile away, and they had been delivering a baby when the men were singing, and the window had been open, and they remember thinking while their child was being born, oh my goodness, the sound of 50,000 people singing the praise of God. They couldn't get it out of their mind. And they, when they sang, these angels, oh my goodness, the sound must have stayed with the shepherds forever. So they were excited. Have you ever met somebody that's so excited that, that because they're about to give the best gift they've ever been able to give anybody, and they, they can't keep it to themselves? You ever been? Uh, after the last service, the lady said, my, my grandchildren were jumping up and down. They were so excited. And they told me what I was going to get, and now I've got to act surprised. <laughs> See, they were just so excited. And if you've ever seen that kind of thing, that's what the angels are. They're going, I know you don't completely understand what's going on, but if you did, you would be so filled up. This is the best news you could ever receive this Christmas. This is the best gift that God could ever give you. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So I want to talk to you about glory and peace. If you're following along, how do we define glory or peace? Have you ever thought about these words are mysterious? The word glory, even when you say it, what, how do you last with it? If someone came up to you on the street and said, can you tell me what glory means? What would you say? So I'm going to take a stab at it, but just know that it's beyond completely describing. When it talks about the glory of God, here's some of the things it means. It means greatness, importance, weight, or honor. It means that when the glory of the Lord shone around them, it meant the greatness, some of the greatness of God was so visible that they were like, wow, that's coming from somebody important. Somebody's 
radiating a kind of glory, a kind of beauty, a kind of presence, a kind of majesty that is mind-blowing. Now, I don't know about you, but the Bible says is that the world has a certain glory, people have a certain glory. Some of us, we remember the glory days of Michael Jordan. Oh, my goodness. Love watching games because Michael Jordan had a certain glory. Maybe you have a an athlete or some person that when you saw them sing or play or speak or athletic ability or do something difficult, you remember thinking, that's a lot of glory. But the Bible says is that the glory of this world and the glory of human beings is passing away. It's fading. It's on its way out. But the glory of the Lord is not going away. And it is so massive that through the highest heaven down to earth, it absolutely fills all of it. That's how great God is. My glory might get past the third step. God's is huge. Look at this, Isaiah 6, if you would, please. This is when the prophet Isaiah had a chance to see the Lord high and lifted up in the year King Uzziah died, and the angels were singing this, holy, 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 by the way, we use exclamation marks or underline things when we want to do something in our language, but they didn't have things like that in Hebrew, so when they repeated something again and again, that was exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. So they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what, friends? But let me just ask you, does it seem like that? I mean, those of us that live in the Midwest, in the middle of the winter, do you spot a lot of the Lord's glory? It's not always immediately evident, is it? But the Bible says is that his glory fills the whole earth. There's something about his greatness, his importance, his weightiness, that at times we may be deaf and dumb to it, we may be blind to it, but it's still there. And so how do we understand this glory? And uh, one of the things that I want us to see is that the Bible says is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. It says that the word became flesh and has made his dwelling, he's pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory, John says. We had an opportunity to see him, and it was unbelievable to be around Jesus, he says. But we also know from Philippians 2 that Jesus, in order to become one of us so he wouldn't blow our minds, laid aside the robes of his glory, and he came down incognito so that he could walk among us. And eventually, after he died and rose again, would take up his robes of glory again. And when people see him, they fall as though dead before him because his glory is so incredible. Right now, if they were just to peel heaven back and we were to see Jesus, his glory would absolutely drop us to our faces. He is full of glory. Glory to God in the highest heaven, the angels sang. You can't see it necessarily, shepherds, but there, his glory is massive. And we live in that reality all the time. So what do we do with his glory? The Bible says is that one of the reasons why we need a Savior is that all of us, instead of living for the glory of God and letting the glory of God be the focus of our life, 
we have decided to exchange the glory of God for other things. And instead of glorifying him, we have refused to do that, and our foolish minds have become darkened where we're numb to reality. And so we need a Savior who can save us from living for our own glory or the glory of this world. And notice this, that if that's true, if you're following along, as we glorify him, life changes. As we glorify him, life changes. And I might add, vice versa. When a person refuses to glorify God, do they become bigger or smaller people? Smaller. Sometimes people go, well, you know, if I disobey God, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just right and wrong. No. You and I, when we do not live to glorify God, we don't just become bad. We become small. A person that tries to glorify themselves, after a while, everybody can see it. What a joke. Their glory isn't as big as they're making it. But when a person says, oh, I want to live for the glory of God, and they humbly do that, complete difference. So how do you and I, understanding the glory of God, glorify him? Uh, Let me just tell you a story of one of the ways I began learning this. The glory of God um, can be found in the simplest little things we do. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. What's whatever mean? It means whatever. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's why some of you remember that some of the great music writers used to say, to the glory of God. They wanted to glorify him with their music. And so that means that you and I, the simplest little thing. So years ago, when I was a youth pastor, um, my wife and I, we bought a little house there in Jerome, about 950 square feet, little kitchen. But I remember we'd had company that weekend, and we used every dish and cup and saucer and spoon and knife and fork that we owned. And we've been given a lot of these things for our wedding, so it was an incredible sight to look over there in our kitchen and see next to the sink these things all stacked up. Now, Trish went off to preschool, and it was my day off, so I remember thinking to myself, man, I hope when she gets home that's not too overwhelming for her. And you can tell whose glory I was living for. And again, across the ticker of my mind, the Lord said, you do it. I want you to glorify me. Wash those dishes with me. I remember thinking, that's a drag. And uh, so I started thinking, okay, this is a moment of truth. You know, again, he showed me exactly what he wanted me to do. It wasn't like, uh, what do you mean, Lord? I'm not sure I understand. See, I completely understood. It was more a matter of whose glory am I going to live? So I began to put the soap suds in the sink, and I began to wash the dishes. And some of you guys, I know you're going to call me out on this. You're saying I wanted to get points with my wife. And you're right. There's no way that I'm going to say that there wasn't some mixed motives in this. But God is patient with us, and he was teaching me something, and so I started washing dishes. Now, I remember when I first started, I went like this. Uh, like this, okay? Then the Lord showed me, you know, you can do this in a way that will give me glory because you're glad I'm leading your life. So I started getting a little bit more into it. I just began to do it, and I remember thinking to myself, man, this changes the way life goes. 
And then I began to sing a song that I had never sang before. It was just one I was making up, but I was trying to apply what I was learning. So I'll try not to hurt your ears. But here's what happened. It went like this. To the glory of God, I choose to be thankful. To the glory of God, I live today. To the glory of God, I walk in your fullness, eagerly taking each step of the way, honoring Jesus in all of my ways. Now, when I, when I did that, I remember thinking to myself, I can do this whatever I'm doing. And I began to learn that this is why Jesus came. Because he wanted me to experience his glory and glorify him. And that when we do, it makes us larger people, not smaller. It makes life bigger and better. It really does. But when you and I refuse to glorify him or exchange his glory and live for other glory, friends, it's not a good way to live. Play it out, I dare you. So glory to God in the highest heaven. And then the second thing is peace to those on whom his favor rests. So look at this. What does peace mean? Peace means, uh, the Hebrew word, often this was used as a greeting, was shalom. And shalom, a lot of times, peace has been redefined in our culture nowadays. When you ask most people what's peace, they'll tell you that peace means the absence of conflict, the absence of war, the absence of any kind of difficulty or circumstance that I don't like. That's peace. So a lot of people's ideas, if I can just get rid of all the undesirable circumstances of my life, then I'll have peace. And the Bible says, no, you misunderstand peace. That's why nations that just try and go for that kind of external peace, it doesn't last long. Peace has to be something that happens from the inside out. And if you're following along, here's what shalom or peace means in the Bible. It means wholeness. It means to be in right relationship. It means to have your life properly ordered, and it means a sense of well-being that comes from things being lined up the way they were meant to be. By the way, in that line, I accidentally put Isaiah 48, 21. Would you correct that to Isaiah 48, 22? That verse simply says, there is no peace for the wicked. That means that when a person is living a wicked life, which doesn't necessarily mean axe murder or that kind of stuff, a wicked person is just someone who refuses to acknowledge God as the Lord over their life. That means that you can actually be wicked and wear nice clothes and live in a nice neighborhood and seem to be a nice person. But there is no peace because a wicked person's life is not rightly related to God and oftentimes not rightly related to people either. Therefore, to have this kind of peace is important. Let me just tell you a story where this came home to me. <clears throat> For about 16 years, I used to volunteer at the Dana Thomas house, the Frank Lloyd Wright designed house there on 4th and Lawrence. And every month I would give tours as a volunteer. And over a number of years, I got a chance to make some friends with people outside our church, some who didn't believe in God and some who did. Uh, and one of the people that I worked with on a regular basis grew up in St. Louis as a Reformed Jew. So this person had a Jewish background, and um, we knew each other well enough uh, that, that we could talk. And so I had just, if I recall correctly, I had just opened the Senate in prayer a couple days before. And when I went to open the Illinois Senate in prayer, one of the things they said to me was, 
hey, there's some Jewish people and there's some atheist people in the, in the legislature. If you could please not say Jesus' name, that would be good. So I, I tried to figure out how to do that, but I remember thinking to myself, I, I wonder if I'll just ask my friend who's Jewish, why is it that Jewish people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah? What, what did he not do to qualify as the Messiah? So this person was able to say real quickly, well, you know, the Old Testament says that he'll be the Prince of Peace. Just look around. He obviously didn't get it done. There's no peace. There's still lots of wars. I remember thinking to myself, I need to think about this more. And what came home to me was, is that if you operate on the definition that peace means world peace where there's no conflict or fighting, then Jesus is not that kind of prince of peace. But if you understand that peace actually is something more profound than that, then you understand that he did come to bring peace and he is the prince of peace. Now I want you to notice something in this verse. If you're looking at that second gray box, do you see that? It says that on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Can I just explain that? That means that when Jesus came as the Messiah, he didn't bring peace to everyone. He didn't come to bring peace to everyone. He came to offer it, but he gives it to those on whom his favor rests. What did we learn a few weeks ago? What does God's favor, what does his grace rest on? A humble attitude, a humble heart. God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Therefore, what this shows us is that God can never have peace with a rebellious person until they humble themselves. The Bible says is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't just mean that we're having a bad day. What that means is we've set ourselves at odds against God's purpose and program in the world. That means that we in our minds, as Colossians 1.21 says, are enemies in our minds with God until he saves us. That means that we cannot know the peace of God until we have peace with God. So if you're following along, here's what was prophesied, and here's what we learn about Christmas, is that by his cross, Jesus is our peace with God. By his cross, Jesus is our peace with God. That means that if you look at this vertical you see that the cross reminds us every time that before we could know peace horizontally, we had to know peace vertically. That that was much, much more important, not just in the size of the cross, but also in the way that it affects our lives. And that you and I can never know the peace of God until we have peace with God. Now, again, what kind of peace are we talking about? I've told this before, but years ago there was a wealthy man who decided that he wanted in his house to have a perfect picture of peace. So he let the word out, and artists from all over the world decided to paint what they interpreted as peace. And it got down to just several entries at the end where they were all veiled, and so one of the, his uh, workers would unveil these, and people would go, oh, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, and it got down to two. And one of the last two was a picture, a painting that someone had painted of an absolute mirror glass lake with sheep sleeping over on the side and just this quiet calm. You could 
feel it when you looked at this painting. People said, surely that's going to win. That's peace. And then unveiled the last one. And here was this storm of thunder and lightning crashing right next to a waterfall that was pounding down. And near the edge of the waterfall was this skinny little branch growing out from the rock in which there was a robin's nest. And there sat the robin on her eggs with her eyes closed, exuding perfect peace in the eye of the storm. And that painting won. Friends, you and I may imagine that we'll have peace someday if we can just get all of our circumstances to be mere glass calm. Good luck. On this side of heaven, God doesn't promise that. That doesn't come until Jesus comes back. That means you and I are going to have to live and circumstances are going to be challenging. And friends, let me just say this. I know that for some of you, in the next three days, that's coming. Some of you are going into very difficult family situations. Some of you are going into celebrating these holidays without someone by your side, and you are feeling it. Some of you are going into this holiday in an economic or emotional or relational challenging thing, and you need the peace of God. And what Christmas is about is that you can have the peace of God, and you can have peace with God, but you cannot have the peace of God without the peace with God. And Jesus came to offer it, and it was very expensive. God just couldn't wink away our rebellion and our sin and our enemy status. He paid for it on the cross. He's a just God, but he offers it freely to all who will humble themselves and say, I don't want to be an enemy of yours anymore. I realize that you came to make peace with me. Oh, God, I want to live for your glory and your relationship instead of my own. And so one more thing here is that am I right with God and with others? Am I right with God and with others? Look up here, if you would, on the screen, Romans 5. Romans 5. Look at, look at how it ties peace and glory together. Therefore, this is written to believers now, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, by trusting him, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Past tense. Because of our faith, our trust in him, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing what, friends? God's glory. And here's what happened at Christmas. Every person that would come to believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for us, he doesn't just say, okay, I'll splash you with a right relationship. No, he died and rose again so that he can now live inside of us. For many of you, a relationship with God is something that happens on the outside. You only understand it this way, on the outside. But what he wants to do is introduce himself to you in a way. He wants you to be born again so that now Jesus Christ, by faith, can live in your life. And friends, when you come to know Jesus, everything changes. It doesn't mean that you can't do, still do some of the same things you did before, but it means you can never look at them the same way again. It means that you can never just you know, live any old way because now Jesus living in you shows you how to live for his glory. He gives you this peace that is incredible to be able to pass it on to other people. 
This past Thursday, we were in staff meeting, and we were looking at this passage and just thinking about how glory and peace related. And then we all went around and prayed for our last staff meeting of the year. And some of you know Bob and Susan Jameson, and Susan's just been so important in our staff. And Susan just prayed something like this. She said, Lord, some of you know that they lost a two-and-a-half-year-old son many years ago named David. She said, Lord, I shudder to think what would have happened when David died if you hadn't been with us. And I remember that your peace upheld us, and I'm so thankful. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his gracious favor rests. He wants us to know that this Christmas, friends. He really does. Some of you heard a few weeks ago how Ronnie Smith was gunned down in Benghazi. A black jeep pulled up and four masked people just shot him down while he was running. He's a Christian from Austin, Texas, and his wife, Anita, was being interviewed by Cooper Anderson. Anderson Cooper, excuse me. And Anderson Cooper, if you ever want to look at it on YouTube, it's an incredible three and a half minutes. Basically, what she says is, I forgive those men that murdered. And then she wrote an open letter to Libya, and it's an incredible thing, and it talks about peace. And here's what she says. She said, she and her husband traveled to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw your hope, and we wanted to partner with you to build a better future. To the attackers, she wrote, I love you, and I forgive you. To the Libyan people, she said, we came to bless you, but you have blessed us much more. Thank you. And then she says, I hear people speaking with hate, anger, and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. I want all of you, all the people of Libya, to know that I am praying for the peace and prosperity of Libya. May Rani's blood shed on Libyan soil encourage peace and reconciliation between the Libyan people and God. You can't do that, friends. You can't make that up. She said over and over again, Anderson Cooper, God's spirit is putting this in me to be able to say this and extend this kind of peace to other people. You and I can know Jesus Christ like that as amazing as it is, this Christmas. So what I want to ask you is this. What's your song going to be this Christmas? What song will you sing? Can you sing, Lord, be my glory and peace, God's gift to me? Be my glory and peace, God's gift to me. If I was to sum up the gospel, I would say Colossians 1.27 is a good way to say it. And here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you say that with me? Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Jesus Christ comes to live in your life and my life, then we not only have the hope of glory, but we can know peace with God and the peace of God, and we can live this year differently. And so we want to close by glorifying him. We want to glorify him with our mouths. We want to give him the praise he deserves. And while you're singing that, if there's any adjustments God's asking you to make, if there's any responses, I urge you, you can do that right where you are. Respond to him the way he wants you to this Christmas.